Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times and the Pointer Institute. On this podcast, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm a former enterprise editor at The Times. Today's topic, the Swan Project. On this podcast, we're going to talk about an etiquette class. Only Lane could make an etiquette class really, really interesting. You can find the link to the story with the podcast or in Lane's book, The Girl in the Window and Other True Tales. When I read this story, I was really struck by your commitment to seeing it through and the chance you took that this would end up well, because I just could imagine, I could imagine the whole thing falling apart, quite honestly, from the from the moment they got this together. But why did you jump on this story? And did, were there moments where you thought, I'm not sure this is going to turn into a story? I think from the beginning, I wondered if it was going to be a story. <laughs> um, I had done... So the story takes place at a place called the Pace Center for Girls. And there's basically these, it's a dropout prevention for troubled girls, girls who've had babies, girls who've been on drugs, girls who've been in jail, girls who've been homeless, um, sex trafficked, you know, all these girls have really hard pasts. And they, they come to these schools, there's one in each community uh, around Tampa Bay. This one was in Lakeland, so it was like an hour away, um, which was also a commitment, you know, to drive two hours each week to do this story. Um, but I had done other stories at other pace centers for girls, and I knew the potential was there in terms of like transformation is kind of what it's about. They're, they try to help the girls go from living these really awful lives to having confidence and being able to navigate the world and hopefully a high school diploma is part of that too you know but they they have a, I did one story about a closet where they go and they have people donate their work clothes so that if the girls get a job in an office they have something to wear you know they had um, cosmetology companies donating makeup so the girls could like learn how to put on makeup and somebody coming in to teach them to do their hair and it was just all about like it wasn't superficial it was very much like life skills you know if, if that makes sense and I, I thought, well, okay, I've probably, I'd probably done three stories at different pace schools over the years by then. And I thought, well, I'll go give it a chance and see. I'd, I'd never heard of the etiquette class. I thought that is probably the last thing these girls need is etiquette. They've got a lot of other problems. <laughs> like they, they, they don't have a place to take a shower. They don't have enough to eat for dinner and they're going to teach them which fork to use. So I think I was cynical, but I was also drawn to the sort of dichotomy of that. Like, why out of all the things that you could teach these girls, are you going to be teaching them etiquette, you know? Um, and then when I met, so I, I, I basically talked my editor into letting me go for a day, like that, give me a day, let me see what happens. They reached out to you. The director of the PACE program said, oh, we have something new we're starting. We're going to, it's a pilot, you know, we're going to give it a try. It wasn't our idea. It came up from this 25 year old brand new guidance counselor who wants to do this and she's made her own program. Um, so I went for the, for the photographer for the very first day. I, I wanted to be there when they were pitching the program to the girls, you know, so I could like hear 
not that they were telling me what was going to happen, but they were explaining it to the girls, right? So I think it was eight Tuesdays um, that the, the program was going to last. And we uh, ended up seeing where we're going to come every Tuesday and just be part of the class. You know, it was like an hour long class and then they would have lunch. Um, or maybe the other way around and have lunch in the hour long class. But, you know, that became the commitment. That became like carve out eight, eight Tuesdays to do this. And then since we were driving an hour each way, we would stay after school was over and try to go home with them or go, one girl got a job interview, one girl rode the bus, and we just kind of went out into their world with them after the class was over each week. So did you have a hard time getting buy-in from the guidance counselor or is she okay with that? So the guidance counselor was was very excited that we might be following her. She wasn't sure she had the buy-in even from her administrators for the program. They gave her zero money for it. So it was all on her own. And again, she's 25 years old. She was a, a beautiful Jamaican woman who modeled on the side and always like dressed to the nines. You know, most of the women, okay, first of all, the pace schools, all women, all the instructors, all the counselors, all the students are all women. But most of the women who work there are like middle-aged schlumpy ladies who are mothers themselves, who wear, you know, scrubs or jeans and a sweatshirt. And this young woman, Kadeen, Miss Kadeen was always dressed in like stiletto heels and pencil skirts and her hair and her makeup were just so, and she felt really out of touch or out of place at that school to begin with, you know what I mean? And so that, I thought that was a really interesting dichotomy, but talking to her before she pitched the story to the girls, her heart was breaking for these girls. She was so sad. They, they, her students made her sad because they had so many problems and they'd had so many setbacks and they had nobody in their corner fighting for them. And she just kept looking at them and saying like, you know, even if we can teach them to read and write and, and pass their GED, how are they gonna exist in the world if they don't know how to eat with a fork? I mean, like basic things, not even which fork, but use a fork, you know? And so she, I think it was out of, sadness and desperation that she decided she should start this class and she came from a very proper Jamaican family where everything was just so and it, I think it sort of shocked and appalled her the lack of grace that these girls had. It, it also came across just this feeling from her of like um, you know what kind of self-worth she could build in these girls if they carried themselves a certain way and if they learned like you said how to live in the world and how to you know, that it would affect how people saw them and that might affect how they saw themselves. So, so I'm thinking of these girls too. Day one, they're getting hit with this etiquette class idea and that's probably blowing their minds. And there's also a reporter here and a photographer. So how did you get buy-in from the students? Were they, were they tickled that you guys were there or did they think it was weird that you were there? I think the first day they kind of ignored us. It was weird that they were there, <laughs> you know, they didn't, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know why they had been chosen. They didn't know what etiquette was. They had never heard that word before, you know? So I think it was pretty easy on that first day to sort of just be a fly on the wall and just be a part of the other weirdness that they were experiencing. And we, me and the photographer were, out of the 10 girls, really scouting for like, who would let us in, but also who was the most diverse. Like what was interesting to me about the three women that we chose was they were so different and they weren't friends at all. They weren't like the, the girls who ate lunch together or who whispered in the corner together. They kind of had a disdain for each other that was almost palpable at the beginning. You know, um, the one girl, Spring was like, she was 
the most self-deprecating young woman I've ever seen in my life. Like she hid behind her hair the whole time. She barely spoke. She didn't think she deserved any attention, much less, you know, uplifting. She was just a, a really sad, broken young woman. And then Lindsay was this little firecracker girl who was just like going to take over the world and like show everybody she didn't matter what you handed her. She was going to make it on her own. You know, she was real plucky and gritty. And then the other girl, Shina, was um, just kind of lost. Like I, I felt like she was, she was kind of like let, letting people tell her what to do. And she was happy to try to please people, but had no drive or even like interest in herself. You know, she was sort of caught in the current, if, if that makes sense. And they were, so they were so different. I, I loved the different personalities that we could find in those three women. And to answer your question in a really long way, we didn't approach them till week two. We sat through the second day of class, watched them again. Just are those who we want? Who do we want? Let's, and then, and then ask them about it. So that was your choice, not the guidance counselor leading you in certain directions. It was just you kind of thinking, we want to pick some different personalities and kind of seeing who kind of interested you the most, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, and interestingly enough, the guidance counselor, as the guidance counselor, didn't know a lot about their home life. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they knew about their academic life or if they'd been sent on probation or something like that but they didn't know the, the circumstances of where the girls lived at home. And so that was all something that was, you know, we uncovered as we were reporting. We didn't know that going in, you know? Oh, okay. Um, what did they, what did those girls make of you guys as you went along? I mean, did they, it must've been weird to have a reporter and a photographer coming home and to, I, I don't know if it's, I mean, I was thinking in, if I were in their place, I'm not sure how I'd, how I'd react. Would I think it's, a good thing like look at somebody's paying attention to me or would I feel like oh my god that's the last thing I want I think it was probably some of each <laughs> um Lindsay the outgoing independent one was much easier to let us in than spring and shine because they they were um they were embarrassed of where they lived um Lindsay kind of lived in her car mm-hmm. so you know she was all about it like like I'm, I've got a car, <laughs> you know, like she was the only one with a car. She didn't have a place to put her head on a pillow really. But um, yeah, they, so the class was eight weeks long, right? We knew we were committed to eight weeks. I should say too, we're talking about how do we get the, the counselor to buy in? How do we get the teachers to buy in? Getting my editor to buy in was a little tough too. <laughs> and he kept saying, you know, like, what's the payoff? You know, what is, and, and I didn't know. And so at the second week, I asked Miss Kadeen, you know, is there a final exam? Do they have a graduation? Like, what is this all culminating in? And she was so excited because she had set up this luncheon at this little country club, this fancy little luncheon for these girls who had, one of them had never held a real fork, a real, she only had plastic forks her whole life. One of them had never worn anything but flip-flops. She'd never had much heels, much less like loafers, you know? And so that the idea of them going to this fancy country club and having this fancy three-course lunch with white linen tablecloths and four forks, that I think sold Mike on it. You know, I, I think that sold me too. Like, okay, no matter what happens on the lead up to this, there's going to be this amazing payoff in this scene, whether they make it like My Fair Lady and pass it at the Ascot races with fire, or they flail out, you know, and go running and crying or have, have a meltdown, smoke or having meltdowns, you know, like there'll be something there. You know, I think, I think knowing that last scene would be the payoff was helpful. 
I wasn't convinced anybody was going to make it to the end. I mean, that <laughs> like to me, it's sort of like, I don't, everything, everything feels kind of dicey, you know, and, and her, you know, you got to dress up, you got to find a dress, you got to, you know, all this stuff. It just sort of felt like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I'm not surprised that Mike was worried. Um, I thought you did a really good job of setting up the tension here. You know, the, that, that this almost feels like a ludicrous idea to try to teach them etiquette. But I was curious whether you very quickly bought into that. Did you see what she was trying to do here? Did it did it feel like, oh, okay, now it makes sense? Some of it did, but some of it felt totally ludicrous. Like I think the, I had a really hard time not laughing my ass off on the day she was trying to get these girls to walk across the room with a book on their heads like to stand up straight and keep their shoulders up. And and the girls first of all, thought it was the stupidest thing ever. And then they got so into it, they were laughing so hard. It became a really fun day, you know, the ludicrousness of it all, but also I think half of them haven't even held a book, but just put one on their head, you know what I mean? And, and so um, they, that was a bonding moment for them as a group of, of young women that, that kind of got them all laughing and out of their shells a little bit. And, um, it became so the, the ridiculousness of it actually became positive, you know, of, of course, for positivity. Um, and going shopping with them too was hilarious. Like having what the teacher wanted them to try on or the counselor versus what they were drawn to in terms of the clothes. They, they had never had someone take them shopping and say, buy a Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yes, you know, that blew my mind too. Like, I mean... I know I'm rambling a little bit and I know you wrote something in the notes here about like you and I were both really middle class, like really middle class. And I think as a reporters, we write about poverty or we write about um, people struggling, you know, economic um, on the economic fringes, but we don't show it often enough, you know, and to, to show girls being thrilled to be in Bell's outlet where the most expensive dress was really like $19. But to them, it was like, you know, getting to go to the Cinderella's ball. It was incredible to remind myself of, of how solidly middle my life was and how many people live so much more difficult existences. I mean, with the one girl spring, I asked, cause it was, they were about eating. Right. And, and she was a big girl and, and, she said, I asked, where do you eat with your family? And she said, we don't eat together. And I went to their house and the kitchen table was filled with like toilet paper rolls and grocery receipts and, you know, cat litter. And, and there was no table. There was nowhere anybody ever would have even thought to sit down and eat a meal together, you know? And it, it just, being able to see that kind of, of poverty and, and the, the way that these girls' worlds that they lived in had never shown them anything else was, was very eye-opening to me, I think. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that because I know that we're both middle-class kids. We grew up with, you know, roof over our heads, parents who, two parents, you know, put food on the table in the suburbs. Um, you know, that shapes your worldview, right? You grow up 
you know, that way. And yeah, you, you know, you and I think nothing of going into a store and being able to plunk down $20 on something uh, if we need it. So, so you know, what, what are the emotions that you're swirling with and how are you trying to control that and not like, um, you know, pull out your own checkbook and say, let me give you some money, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a hard part. I think the first, uh, the first wash of emotions is gratitude. Like I'm so lucky. I'm such a lucky human being to have had the life that I had. I'm the second part is that I need to show readers what this is like, what these girls are living with, dealing with, struggling with. I, I really wanted to be able to bring people along to like walk in their flip-flops for a couple of days and and see what that was like. Um, seeing how they see themselves, you know, was very revelatory. Um, the, the lack of self-esteem, you know, was heartbreaking in a lot of ways because they didn't see themselves as being worthy of, of much. Um, and then and lack of parents, you know, like they, they're, I mean, if it was my 15, 16 year old kid being written about in the paper, I would have damn been on the phone with that reporter. I would have met that photographer. I would have said, what's going on? I want to be there. These parents, they signed off to let us talk to him and didn't ever even want to talk to us. Like yeah. they had no, Lindsay had no parents in her life. Spring's mom worked four jobs or something. And I think one of my favorite scenes in that story is when we rode the bus home with China and her mom unexpectedly came home from work and sees her with this shopping bag and she puts her dress on for the first time her mother's never seen her daughter in a dress and her mother just started weeping and it was like it was such a huge moment for them you know but like as a reporter too like I got to witness that you know it was literally the Cinderella transformation you know she goes in in these grubby sweatpants and and comes out of the bathroom with this dressed with a golden bow on it. It was just like, wow. You know, my, her mom couldn't even believe it. That was her daughter, you know. That was a great scene. Um, I was going to say, you know, I what I really liked about how you handled the story, though, you didn't shy away from their circumstances and the things they'd been through and even acknowledging some of their own, um, you know, th their issues with self-worth and self-esteem. But I felt like you you treated the whole situation with dignity. And I think some of that to me was that you didn't, it, it didn't feel like you were judging their circumstances and also by incorporating some of their dreams into the conversation, it felt like you were giving them a chance to, to not just be defined by who they were in that moment. So I'm curious, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. No, I, I do think that's a struggle and, and I try so hard not to judge, you know, it's, it's, I think it's, the most important thing you can do as a reporter is not judge the people you're writing about and, and not feel like you know what they're going through, you know, not assume anything at all. Um, and we, we waited, you know, I think three or four weeks of, of being at the school with them um, before we asked if we could come home with them, you know, and they were reluctant. They, they were embarrassed. Um, and I had to say, like, don't clean up anything. Don't do anything for us. You know what I mean? But I wanted them I'm going to say this because I was really cognizant of not wanting to look down or, or not try to say that I, you know, somehow the rest of us readership was above this. I wanted them to be the guides. I wanted them to show me the house, to, to explain to me what was going on, um, why you didn't have a table there, why you don't ever eat with your family, um, why you don't have a bed, you know, like, and, and kind of tell it through their eyes. And that became really helpful also in terms of like, 
physical description. Like I didn't want to go in and talk about what they looked like, but I wanted them to be able to say how they saw themselves. You know what I mean? So there's, I think there's a lot less of my observations and um, analysis in this story and a lot more of them self-revealing, if that makes sense, more in their words. And, and once they started bonding with each other too, back to our favorite thing that happens was dialogue. And they started sharing their stories a little bit more with each other as the weeks progressed. And so that was super helpful too, like letting, letting them open up instead of me trying to crack them open, you know? That's a, that's and a great tip, yeah. They, they had such a funny way of talking too. I just love their language, the vernacular that they used. So I used a lot more quotes, I think, than I normally would have. Yeah, but, that, but that's a great, that really is a great tip. You know, let them, don't, because even even when you ask questions, and I'm I'm talking about you, anyone. Even when you ask questions, it's um you know they're loaded. They're coming from your perspective and where where you live, and so if it's kind of like you said, kind of giving them control a little bit. Describe for me, you know, what schools meant, what's you know, what's your home life, all of this, and and letting them do that. Um, but I will say that too, there are moments in the story that you do what you always do, which is really great. I think, which is sort of like. No, you're 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 conveying something, and then you step back, and you and you kind of help the reader uh, take in and analyze what they're seeing. And the to me, it was uh, one of those moments was where you said it was it was my fair lady with a young Jamaican teacher as Henry Higgins and a bunch of coarse small town kids as Eliza Doolittle. So you know this this stuff is playing out for the reader, and then you you pause for a minute. And you put in this cultural reference, which I did, it made me wonder if these girls had ever seen My Fair Lady, but, but still, you know, for the, for your readership, I'm sure it was, it, it instantly clicked and they could see, oh, okay, you know, they're putting the pieces together and then you come back to the action. So um, I do think that's something that really good writers learn to do is they learn just how to like bring a little context to a situation, you know, pull away just enough and then pull back in. And you know, when I reread that last night, I cringed at the My Fair Lady moment. Did you? Because I thought exactly that. Like, this is so not their world. They would have no idea. No idea who My Fair Lady They, I'm, I'm guaranteeing you they don't even know what a musical is, much less who My Fair Lady and Henry Higgins is, you know. Their cultural worlds were so teeny tiny, you know. And and so I, I cringed when I reread it. And I thought, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because yes. All of a sudden, people like my mother are going to go, oh, Pygmalion, oh, and have a little bit more sympathy for the little wretched flower girl, you know, that he pulls out of the gutter. But their world is going to scratch their head and go, what the hell? Like, you know, why is she taking us on that turn? So I don't know if that was good or bad. Or well, not. but I didn't, you know, but the truth is that you're writing their story for a different audience. I mean, you know, you're certainly writing it, I think, with with respect to them and their circumstances, they're not going to read this story. Maybe necessarily, they may not even read it. Who knows? But um, but your audience would get it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was one thing. I mean, you know, truth be told, that is one of my favorite musicals of all times. I love and I love the, the Pygmalion play. And so I did think about that. Like from the moment that she pitched this idea, I was like, oh, it's going to be like My Fair Lady. So that wasn't something that like came along through the reporting. That was my initial thought was like this is what it's like like this is a tale as old as time right like that kind of an idea um and and I do I, I like what you said about the girls might not have even read it because I wondered about that too I took them copies I absolutely I know that Cheyenne gave it to her mom I don't know if she read it I don't know what happened with spring Lindsay asked us for extra copies because she wanted to take it to a job interview because she thought that the story would show potential employers 
her story better than she could ever say it. And I thought that was pretty cool. Like, like That's she, so nice. yeah. she liked it enough to explain where she was at in the world and why that she wanted to share it with a potential employer at yeah. I think a coffee shop or something. So yeah, that was cool. Um, so one last question, and I, I know I've asked you sort of a variation on this question, but you know, I, to a lot of reporters, this would not be a sexy story. You know, there's all this time investment in the story with the chance that the girls stop coming with a chance that they don't want to talk to you. They don't want to, you know, open up, um, that there's one kid at the end, <laughs> nobody else is coming to this luncheon. Um, but you know, what do you get out of a story like this? What do you personally get out of a story like this? Mm, wow, that's a great question. Um, I think in the back of my mind most times, I'm, I'm wanting to say to our readership of mostly middle-class, upper-class people, don't feel like you know what's happening in these people's lives. Don't feel like the people that you would like to dismiss are worthy of being dismissed. Like, let me show you the humanity here. That's what I want to do, I guess. I want to show people the humanity of maybe a, a group of people or a marginalized section of society that they just dismiss or, you know, drop off clothes at the Salvation Army and think they've helped solve a problem, you know, and, and bring these real life struggles. And as you said, hopes and dreams, you know, I don't want to just focus on the past and how messed up everything has been for these girls and how hard their lives are. I want to show that they have hopes and dreams and determination. And one little 25 year old Jamaican lady is wanting to make a difference enough to put herself out there for this next generation. You know, it's a quiet story. Um, it really is. And the victories are small, but I love the ending of this story more than almost any other ending I've ever written because it, I felt like it totally echoed the tone of the story but it was also surprising you know what I mean and um I, the, this is neither here nor there but my son Tucker this is his favorite story of all my stories I've ever 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 written and that was one reason I wanted to include it in the book but it's also the only story I ever got a note a handwritten note from the former publisher of the then St. Petersburg Times who said it was his favorite story he read that year and so I don't know how many people it spoke to overall um, but I do know it touched some people and I, it, it was an honor for me to get to watch these girls go through this transformative two months in their lives. All right. Thanks for listening, you guys. Don't forget, you can find other episodes at pointer.org forward slash right lane. And please join our Facebook group. This podcast was produced by Jesse Lau. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.